Welcome to City Church. We are a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus, grow together, and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. What we're going to do, as we always do, is because uh, the kingdom of God is central to the Lord's Prayer, we always stand together and we say the Lord's Prayer out loud before we go into the sermon. And so let's do that together. If we could out loud read together the prayer. This then is how you should pray. Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in Charlottesville as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to read more text. You can open up your your Bible if you have it or utilize your smartphone and look at Mark chapter 15. We're going to have the text also on the screen. But again, we are moving through the idea of the kingdom of God. What is it and how do you live in it? We've been utilizing the gospel of Mark. Last week, Erin Seegers, who was an undergrad at UVA that worshiped at City, then she went to law school right after undergrad at UVA, worshiped here, and then she came back to preach a sermon last Sunday on the trial of Jesus from the viewpoint of an attorney, and it was an awesome sermon. I encourage you to listen to it if you didn't. That was from Mark 14. So this week, I'm gonna be taking a look at Mark chapter 15, and we're going to read three sections from the beginning of Mark chapter 15. There are three sections that we're going to be taking a look at. It's a lot more text than we normally read. Now, as I'm getting ready to read, there's one thing I want to mention about how to read the Bible. It's important, and it's this. In Greek and Hebrew, there's no punctuation, which means literally, if you were to open up the gospel of Mark in Greek, it's one run-on sentence. Literally from front to finish. All of the punctuation was added by the translators. They add that. And in the ancient world, and especially in Eastern literature, which is what the Bible is, the way you emphasize something and actually make it the point is you repeat it. You don't use an exclamation point. You don't embolden it. You repeat it, and multiple times, multiple times. And so in the text we're getting ready to read, I want you to notice that there's this phrase, and hint, the phrase is repeated five times. And by that, we know this, that phrase, is the point of the story. So we're getting ready to read three episodes from Mark chapter 15. It's a lot more reading biblically than I normally do, but I think it's important for us to do that. So let's read together. Mark 15, first section, Jesus before Pilate. Here's what the text tells us, Mark 15. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. 
Now, it was the custom of the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in an uprising. Let me put it bluntly, Barabbas was a terrorist. He was someone that had come into the Roman Empire and into Israel, and he had been killing Romans and Roman soldiers, and he led an insurrection and got arrested. That's going to become key. Reading on, it tells us, the text tells us that, um, reading on, it says, now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him, wanting to satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. That's the first movement. Now let's go to the second. The soldiers mocked Jesus. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him, falling on their knees. They paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. Third movement, the crucifixion of Jesus. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. When they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, he did not take it, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him, and the written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him along among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified him also heaped insults on him. By the way, what was the repeated theme? What was the repeated phrase? Who knows what it is? It's the king of the Jews. You see, the purpose for the text that we just read is to present to you the king. The king. That entire text is about one thing. It's about Jesus as king. That's truthfully what it's about. Jesus is the king. Now, there's a few things we need to know about crucifixion before we move on. First of all, 
It is not accurate that thieves were crucified. That's not true. As a matter of fact, if you were to look for the word in Greek that is translated in a lot of English Bibles as thieves, that's not a good translation. The translation is actually rebel. It's a terrorist. The only people that the Romans crucified were terrorists. They didn't crucify thieves. They put them in prison or enslaved them. But they didn't crucify them. The only people that were put on the cross were terrorists. And Barabbas was one. Did you remember what he had done? He had led an insurrection and had killed people. That's what a terrorist does. He was a terrorist. So remember that when some of the Jewish leadership bring Jesus to Rome or to Pilate in order to have him crucified, what do they say he has done? He is the what? The king of the Jews. Now the Jews want to have him crucified for blasphemy. Do you think Rome could care less about blasphemy? They could care less. They'd say that's your problem. But when they hear that there's a guy who claims to be the king of the Jews, and Rome has put Herus Antipas as the king of the Jews, you have a problem. So when the, some of the Jewish leadership brings Jesus to the Roman Empire, specifically Pilate, they bring him in with the charge. And what's the charge? He is the what? The king of the Jews. Five times in the text that you just read, the gospel writer Mark lets you know it's about a king, and kings always have kingdoms, always. Now, my wife and I actually returned from a trip to Israel last Sunday morning. We landed in Dulles at 5 a.m., and I actually made it to the 9.30 service. Now, with that said, don't be overly impressed. I couldn't fall asleep, so I went ahead and came to church. Now... One of the neat things that I'm blessed to do is I serve as the New Testament teacher at different biblical sites uh, with a, a couple that takes trips to Israel. It's the third time I've done it. And so one of the things that I came across that I'd never seen before in Israel, I found it or noticed it in the Antiquities Museum in Jerusalem. And it has to do with crucifixion. It's really interesting. One of the things that we need to know is that only terrorists were crucified. The other thing is it was against the law for a Roman citizen to be crucified. It was so painful and so horrific that it was against Roman law for a Roman citizen to be crucified. By the way, it's worth noting that the English word excruciating is literally the Greek word that is excruciate that explains how painful the cross was. The cross was so horrifically painful that the Greeks coined a new word, ex out of cruciate the cross. Excruciate literally means the pain of the cross. That's what it means. Now, the other thing is only men were crucified. Now, what was amazing is when I was in the Antiquities Museum in Jerusalem, I'd never seen this before, I have took this picture of an ossuary, and next to it is an ankle bone with a Roman spike through it, and here's a close-up of that. That's the only known actual physical proof of crucifixion. It's the only physical proof left. But what the text teaches us is that Jesus was subjected to the death of a terrorist. And it's Pilate that sends him 
to his death. Now, what I want to do in very devotional format, this is different than most sermons I preach. I want us to take a look at the three sections that we just read. We're going to take a look at one section at a time, and we're going to put feet to our faith with each one. There are three sections. Jesus before Pilate, the soldiers mocked Jesus, and the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, when it comes to Pilate, it's very fascinating. We know nothing about him. Almost all of the Roman leaders that show up in the Newer Testament, we know a lot about them. We know where they served before they came into biblical time, where they went after biblical time. We know a ton about them. What's literally amazing is no one knows anything about Pilate. We don't know where he came from. He just appears in the New Testament. He's obviously the Roman guy that's overseeing the Jews. But we know nothing about him other than that. He literally appears in the Bible. Josephus mentions him in his book, Antiquities, but that's it. So we don't know anything about him. But the Bible tells us that some of the leaders of the Jews bring Jesus to him. The text found in Matthew 27, 19 about Jesus before Pilate brings about an interesting fact that's important. Pilate's wife warns him not to touch Jesus. The text literally says, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man. I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now picture your Pilate. Jesus has been brought before you. The Jewish leadership wants him crucified. And Jesus is brought before you, and you're getting ready to pass judgment, and all of a sudden, a note comes from stage left, and it's in your wife's handwriting, and it says this. Pilate's wife said, I've had a dream, and I was tormented in the dream because this guy's innocent. Don't touch him. Isn't that fascinating? Now, men, how many of you listen to your wives? All the time, both hands up before God and man. Mike, you're lying before God and man. No, I'm just kidding. You know what's funny in the first service when I mentioned this? I literally watched a wife turn to her husband and he ghosted her. He never even looked at her when I asked him that question. It's literally hilarious. Now, what we have here though is imagine you're a pilot, you get this note from your wife. By the way, this amazing painting that's up on the screen now is one of the the masters painted this painting in the 1500s, and there's Pilate's wife with her back to Pilate, and her head is down in sorrow, and Pilate now has just announced he's going to crucify Jesus. But when we look at the text, what we find is, is Pilate made this decision for a reason. And Matthew 27, 24 tells us that he knew Jesus was innocent and he even washed his hands of him and yet he still crucified him. And Mark 15, 15, which all we already read tells us why. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Let's put feet to our faith with that one. I know that we have a good number of people who are a part of city and have been worshiping or coming to worship and you've been checking out Jesus. 
You've been making the decision whether or not you're gonna put your faith, hope, and trust in him and that you'll choose to follow him. Isn't it amazing that Pilate's wife was informing Pilate of who, he, who Jesus was? She announced him to be completely innocent. And yet there's this one phrase that's haunting. It says that Pilate crucified Jesus, why? Because of the crowd because of culture, because of the masses. And I'm a firm believer that a lot of us sitting here who have considered Jesus but haven't chosen to follow him, it's for the same reason. It's the exact same reason. Because you know the crowd rejects him. But there's something deep within your spirit that says this guy is who he said he was. He truly is God's king. And the same reason why people reject him today is the reason why Pilate did. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, please just push through that. Push by that. Jesus is so awesome and so amazing, you will never regret that decision. It will transform everything about your life. Now, Pilate in the text, we know, flogs Jesus and hands him over to be crucified. But if you were to take out your computer and Google Pontius Pilate, you're going to find something that's shocking. And that is the Coptic Church of Egypt and the Eastern Orthodox Church have sainted he and his wife. They're saints, both of them. And the reason is, the oral tradition is, is that Pilate, after the resurrection of Jesus, observes Jesus' resurrection he observes him and comes to become a Jesus follower. He puts his faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. Not only this, he goes to Tiberius Caesar in Rome and he brings the gospel to Tiberius. This is oral history, oral tradition. After that, he and his wife become missionaries and they share the gospel. So the Coptic church in Egypt and the Eastern Orthodox church believe that's true to the point where they are saints in both of those traditions. So the point that I'm making is this, that the crowd eventually did not keep Pontius Pilate for becoming a Jesus follower. It was after the resurrection, it was after Easter that he came to believe and he personally brought the gospel to Tiberius Caesar and shared the gospel with him. By the way, there are historians believe that's why Pontius Pilate disappears from history. Because after he became a Jesus follower, he exited his position of authority and became a missionary and Rome washed their hands of him. Now let's go to our next section. The next section is, is the soldiers mock Jesus. This section's going to be short, but I want to read it. It says, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers they put a purple robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. There's that phrase again, five times in what we've read, the King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him, falling on their knees. They paid homage to him. And when they had, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe, put on his street clothes, and then they led him out crucify him. You see, if you've ever read the gospel, you know this to be true. 
The Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus is born not a prince, but a king. And there's one thing that makes every king truly a king in public. You have to have this. You are not a king until you have this. And we just watched Charles III do it in England. He had what's called a coronation. You have to have that. If you don't have a coronation, you're not a king. And everyone knows this. Well, what we just read is Jesus' coronation. Jesus' coronation was a crown of thorns. Jesus' throne is a cross. You have to understand this, that Jesus' coronation is the cross. And the text is very careful to tell you that Jesus was literally coronated. A crown was put on his head. Royal robes were placed over his shoulders. The staff that they gave to him, Matthew says, they took it back and beat him with it. And the point that I'm trying to make is Jesus is a true king, but trust me, that coronation is not like any other. It's a coronation of self-denial. It's a coronation of self-giving. It's a coronation of surrender. And if you want to talk about feet to your faith, this is where Jesus the man, Jesus the human, fully puts feet to his faith. He totally trusts in the plan of God. And he goes through with his coronation as king. But much like his triumphal entry, Jesus' coronation doesn't look like any other king's ever has or ever will be. It's a coronation of surrender and self-sacrifice and generosity and giving to all of humankind. You see, a coronation is when a king struts his power. Jesus surrenders his, and that's what he does. It's a coronation like none other. But because he does this, three days later, God raises him from the dead, and Jesus' authority and power is given because of the selfless act of his coronation. And then lastly, the final is the crucifixion of Jesus. The text tells us this in the Gospel of Luke. Mark mentions the crucifixion, but to close this sermon, I want to read for us Luke's account. We'll look at that, and we'll close in prayer. Jesus is crucified. The soldiers all came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are, and there's our phrase, the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews, and the gospel of Matthew says that was written in three languages so everyone knew it. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, don't you fear God, he said, since you or I are under the same sentence. We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man in agreement with Pilate and what Pilate knew to be true. This terrorist looks at Jesus and says, this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. How the crucifixion account closes is one that begs you and I to step into this drama. 
The details that are given, if you take all and harmonize the Gospels, is clear. Jesus is in the center cross, and he's being crucified. By the way, just so you know, Romans didn't crucify people high up in the air. They crucified them at eye level. Jesus is in the middle. And by the way, Rome always crucifies you on a highway where a lot of people travel or at an intersection outside of a city. And so Jesus is crucified at eye level and he's in the middle and there's a terrorist to his right or a rebel to his right and a rebel to his left. Let's say the one on the right begins to attack Jesus verbally along with the crowd. But the one on the left looks at Jesus and he has this incredible dawning of faith. And he looks at Jesus and he realizes that this guy is innocent and that he is truly the king. And he says to Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, bring me to. Bring me to. Would you please bring me? For all that I've done and all the people that I've killed and all the horrific things I have done to other people, would you take me too? And Jesus says, yes. But you have to picture the theater and the drama that's happening. You have Jesus in the middle, and the gospels are written in such a way to where you and I are called to stand in front of the cross. Jesus is in the middle, and to the left is someone who is believing and receiving, and to the right is someone who rejects him. And the gospel account in the gospel of Mark brings you right there and asks you to make a choice for yourself. Will you reject him or will you accept him? Will you put your faith, hope, and trust in him just like that rebel, that terrorist has done that is to the left of Jesus? Or will you join the masses in the crowd and culture and reject him? Which are you gonna do? And the gospel ends this way. Would you stand with me as we close? As we stand together, I'm going to ask that you would take a moment to close your eyes. I know we have a lot of people that worship with us online and worship with us in person here in this sanctuary. But there are a good number of people that you've been coming to city for a few weeks, maybe a few months, maybe even years. You've been looking at Jesus and you've been considering him. This is one of the gospel stories that brings you to the point of decision. I want to encourage you, even challenge you this morning to make a decision by faith to follow Jesus. The episode of the cross brings you there. Jesus in the middle, rejection to the right, acceptance and faith to the left. Which side will you move to? And I encourage you to accept him now. Let's take a moment to pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are a king. Thank you that you're a king that was crowned on a cross, whose throne was a crucifix, and you gave yourself for us. Jesus, I pray over every woman and man 
that is part of this worship service, whether online or in person, that every single one of us would choose you, that we would choose to declare you as king of our lives, that we would find ourselves in your kingdom because of what you've done on the cross for us, that we would truly repent of our sin and we would by faith choose to follow you. And we pray this in Jesus' name.